Welcome to the Drinking with Gin podcast. I'm your host, Ginny Preem. I'm that friend that you can chat with about anything. Relationships, career, travel, fashion, with zero judgment. This is a space where we will navigate struggles and celebrate triumphs and share some laughs along the way. This is your new favorite community that you didn't even know you needed in your life. I'm a speaker, author, and master certified professional coach. I call you, my friends, gems, because this is where we can all shine our brightest. And now that you're in the circle, you and all of the other gems can tune in for relatable, real talk. Oh, Jem, welcome. If this is your first time and welcome back, if you are returning again, I am so delighted today to have with us Dr. Timothy Levine. Thank you for being here today. I'm so excited. I told you I've been like geeking out, ready, getting ready and waiting for this uh, day to come. I'm happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Okay, so let me tell you, well, first of all, we always have to start with what are you drinking? And I was telling him just before, um, I'm actually drinking a LaCroix Limoncello. Um, I'm being very basic today, but I was debating having a coffee and I saw on your bio that you're a huge coffee enthusiast. So are you drinking coffee today? I am drinking coffee. I, uh, I, I hand poured a cup right before, uh, uh, right before I logged on. Ooh, that's a treat. A, sp- a pour over a hand pour. Yum. That sounds delicious. Well, Jim, whatever you're drinking, I hope it's delicious as you sip and listen along to this amazing conversation that we're about to have. So I found Dr. Levine through reading Malcolm Gladwell's book, Talking to Strangers. And I was just captivated and fascinated by your work on the truth default theory. So we're going to dive into that today. But Tell them a little bit. So you are a professor and chair at the University of Birmingham. At uh, University of Alabama, Birmingham. Okay. I want to be confused uh, with the University of Alabama, which is down the road and has the good football and basketball teams. Is there a good sports team at Birmingham? Uh, Good for the level they play at. Okay. Okay. Perfect. So... Your work, I mean, I, of course I did my due diligence and you have so many articles and so much work that you have written theories, journals that you've contributed to books you've written and just a plethora of work. So, um, I will link your website so that people can go and find more information on some of the additional work that you do. I'll put that in the show notes, but let's talk a little bit about the truth default theory today, because that's what I was captivated by. And I related to so much because I have been deceived, you know, like if you've read my book, you're my favorite. I write about my story of being in a relationship with someone that was not at all who I thought they were. And one day my life was one thing. And the next day it was not what I thought it was at all. And so that's where I was really pulled in by this truth default theory, because what you're saying is naturally humans want to believe that they're being told the truth? Yes, and it has to be this way. Why does it have to be this way? So let me start with uh, mentioning that I'm a professor of communication. And communication is what we're doing right now. And all of us spend an awful lot of our lives communicating. 
And communication does at least three really critical things that uh, shape, uh, e that, that affect every human and just shape who we are uh, individually and, and as a species. Hmm. First, unlike any other species on the planet, humans can store knowledge. We can not only, not when we learn things, we don't have to pass it down person to person, but we can write books, we can store knowledge, we can learn things, we can teach others. Uh, this enables technology uh, where uh, innovations are based on prior innovations. Uh, all of science rests on this, where uh, most scientists don't have to go and start uh, from the beginning, they can, they can rest. Uh, but in order to uh, have technology and have science and to be able to pass down knowledge, we have to uh, be able to trust what we read and trust what we learn. There would be absolutely no point in students paying tuition at my institution and taking my classes if it was a flip of a coin, uh, if they were getting good information or not. Uh, beyond just learning things that we don't have to discover ourselves, uh, the second thing that communication lets us do, it let, it's lets us cooperate with other people. Uh, so in all of our jobs, so, you know, I didn't make the clothes I'm wearing. Uh, I hand poured my coffee, but I didn't grow it. I, I didn't make uh, the filters. I can buy those. Uh, so what we do through our lives involves cooperating with other people. We don't have to do everything ourselves. And, in order, and you can't really cooperate well with other people if you can't trust them to work together. It would just break down. And third, maybe the most important thing in our lives is our uh, social and personal relationships, our relationships with our family, our relationships with our friends. Uh, and in order to uh, develop and maintain relationships of all kinds, we have to uh, be, be able to take people uh, pretty much at face value for what they say. If, if you did kind of the thought experiment where you imagined what if there wasn't a truth fall? What if you did second guess every little bit of incoming information? I think you realize why it has to be this way. We would just bog down immediately in uncertainty. And we just couldn't get anywhere in our lives. We couldn't learn things. We couldn't make friends. Uh, so, so it has to be this way. So the core idea of truth default theory is that honesty is the default mode of communication. People are honest unless they have a reason not to, and sometimes they do. And people believe others unless they have a reason to disbelieve. So it's not like you have to believe other people or you have to be honest, but that's the default mode. That's the starting point. And it requires something, either some reason why the truth doesn't work to be deceptive or uh, some red flag in order to be suspicious. And uh, sometimes the red flags have to be pretty uh, persistently in your face uh, for them to take hold. Uh, people are uh, more prone to believe than they think they are. Just like people are more honest than other people think they are.
Okay. That's so interesting. That was what I was going to ask you is what if, you know, you have a tendency to feel like you're being lied to, right? So you're saying that these red flags get raised. You feel like you're being lied to. We still default to wanting to believe that's the truth. Uh, most of us. Okay. There's, there's some people who have been, you know, really badly burned. I know a little something about that. <laughs> and uh, if you can't heal and you maintain your suspicion and it you apply it to everybody, um, this is uh, going to, I think, be very problematic for you. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, and I think that's why I was so passionate. You know, we were chatting before is like me sharing that story and going on this healing and growing journey is to be able to have these conversations, because if you're not healed, you can't really have these conversations and you do, you tell the story so differently when you're healed. So kind of going back to that whole basis and foundation of trust, like this is what I've always said is that all of my relationships need to be built on a foundation of trust. And honestly, like I'm honest to a fault. I always joke that if I pull up to an on-ramp and it's metered to get onto the highway and both lights are red and there's no other cars, I'll still stop. Like I'm, I'm that person. That's just like honest to a fault. Like my dad always said, and he, my dad was my guy and he's not with us any longer, but he always said that I wore rose colored glasses. And I always thought that was an insult and then later on, I was like, no, I get it now. He was saying that I like to see the good. And, you know, I like to see the good in people and the good in things and find the good in things. And, you know, sometimes that can get you into trouble, unfortunately. But that's, I think, a little bit what we're talking about today, right? So the basis and foundation of relationships, human communication is built on trust and wanting to trust others. Exactly. Okay. So what happens when, you know, I, I think I told you there is a line in Malcolm's book, and it may have been a quote from you that when that trust is violated for someone, it can be really devastating. So how do you recover from that? You know, it depends a lot on the, on the person and the, and the situation and uh, how bad, how bad the trust was uh, violated. But I, I suspect uh, it helps to keep in mind that most people are pretty honest. Uh, and you need to have some good experience. Focus on your good experiences with the people you have good experiences with. Okay. And that was one of the things that was so surprising to me is you have said a couple of times that more people are more honest than we think. So can you break down? I think you have some really... Uh, to me, they were really surprising statistics around this. So I'm going to nerd nerd out please, here a little please bit. Please do. Um, and be, be, be Professor Tim Burke a little bit. So the core idea of truth-fault theory is that, the core ideas, people are honest unless they have a reason not to. That means most people should be honest most of the time. And people tend to believe other people. And believing other people uh, works really well if people are mostly honest. But if you lived in a world where there was lots and lots of deception, it would be profoundly dysfunctional. So once I kind of had what I thought might be this fundamental kind of core insight regarding truth to fault theory, then I had to start studying, well, how honest are people? 
so my colleagues and I set about uh, asking people how often they lie. Uh, now, I will, I will say up front, have you ever heard of the Ig Nobel Prizes? I have not. So the Ig Nobels are jokes on the Nobels. Okay. Or uh, people who do dumb and stupid research. Okay. And I didn't win one, but some psychologists out of Netherlands who are replicating our findings uh, did win one for this. Okay. The, the committee apparently thought it was hilarious to ask liars how often they lie. But we actually have reason to believe that most people are honest on surveys, mostly. But anyways, what we find is, so we ask people how many times have you lied last 24 hours? And uh, our, our first time out, we uh, did a nationally representative sample in the U.S. Uh, and asked them uh, that question. 60% uh, of people said zero. 15% uh, said one. The average was a little over one and a half. So 75% of people were below average. And then it went on from there, uh, where some people, some small percentage of people were accounting for almost all the lies. Hmm. Uh, next up, we tried the study uh, with a representative sample in the United Kingdom, and we found virtually identical results. So to date, we've done this in uh, a whole number of countries, uh, Korea, China, Germany, uh, Mexico, uh, to, to name a few. And we always find this pattern where most people are pretty honest, but there's a few people who tell almost all the lies. The uh, Netherlands researchers uh, found the same thing, but they built in a task where people had the opportunity to cheat for money. And they found that the people who said that they lied a lot were the ones who cheated. And the people who said they didn't lie uh, turned out not to not to cheat. They were honest on the, when given the opportunity uh, to cheat too. So we have a, at least some reason to believe uh, that uh, the findings are, are somewhat accurate. That is fascinating. And honestly, a little bit relieving, right? To, to have this data out there that you've done the research repeatedly over and over different groups, different countries around the world to say, hey, like this is a constant repeated pattern that most people are honest. And then there's a small percentage of people that are the ones that are the most egregious when it comes to, you know, lying and potentially cheating, right? Those two kind of went hand in hand. Have you done, um, is there anything behind the, the motivation of why the lying? Uh, this is a, a, another part of truth fault theory. So it follows that if honesty is the default, and we're honest unless we have a reason not to be, that there has to be reasons or motives for lying. Okay. So in, in my thinking, the reason we communicate with other people is we're trying to accomplish goals. We're getting, we get things done. Uh, communication is an instrumental activity. So we're trying to get these things done. Sometimes the truth interferes with what we want to do. Hmm. And that's when people, some people, not all people, lie. So if the truth works in your favor, 
imagine uh, a friend invites you over for dinner and they say, I've spent all day cooking. How's the food? And you absolutely love it. What do you say? I love it. It's great. Thank you. Everybody says that, right? Yeah. Nobody, nobody lies that. <laughs> no, it, it, I, I've done oh, no, You're going to put me nobody on the spot. I feel like I'm going to get in big trouble right now. <laughs> yeah. But then if you change the situation ever so slightly and you said the same situation, it's just, you really didn't like it very much. Do you say, honestly, I really appreciate you having me over, uh, but this just, uh, it wasn't my, my thing. Uh, or do you say, no, that was fantastic. Thank you very much. Is there, is there an in-between? Is there a, like, thank you so much for cooking. I've enjoyed coming over. <laughs> of course there is. There, there's uh, uh, what my friend Steve McCornack calls package truths and package lies. Yeah. Right. And, and there's how much you shade, you know, so you can say almost everything. You just leave out that one little critical bit of uh, information. And I think if you're a skilled communicator, uh, you almost never have to uh, actually say things that are false. Yeah. You can just kind of maneuver. But I also understand not wanting to hurt someone's feelings, right? Like, I mean, so that's where it gets kind of like like what you're talking about on this scale of kind of severity of lies. Is that, I don't know if that's what you would call it or how you would describe it. Uh, that's, that's very, they're very much how I, I think about it. And when we do those studies asking people, how many times have you lied? We find that about 90% are little polite things and about 10% are uh, more big, bad things. Or harm, you know, harmful to others. Okay. Yeah. Oh, that's also comforting so if, to if know. If I'm interviewing for a job and I'm, I'm fully qualified, I'm going to honestly present my qualifications. It's only if I'm not qualified that I won't. If I didn't do some crime, I'm going to honestly profess my innocence. It's only if I am guilty that I might. So the motives that lead to honesty are also the motives that lead to deception. What's different is how the truth lines up with the goals. So in the, in the case of deception, it's when the truth is inconsistent with your communication goals. And so what deception lets you do communicatively is lets you accomplish things you couldn't do honestly. But interestingly, there's some people always, even when the truth doesn't work in their favor, they're still honest. But when the truth does work in people's favor, almost everybody is honest. But there is one exception, and that is pathological lie. And that's very rare. Um, but if any of your listeners uh, have ever met a pathological liar or no one, I'm I'm sorry, um, it's incredibly disorienting uh, because they lie compulsively even when the truth would work in their favor, even when they know lying is a problem for them, they know this is hurting their relationships, uh, they know uh, it's destructive to, to their careers, uh, but it's, it's a compulsive thing and they can't help themselves.
Yeah. And sometimes there can be even more complexities interwoven with that pathological line. Um, I've certainly crossed paths with pathological liars um, in very close relationships. And it is, it can be really damaging because that is when you start to kind of question things. I do still think quite honestly, I, I still have my rose color glasses on. I like to see the good in people. I like to see the good in things. So, you know, Gem, if you have been in, uh, you know, close proximity or had experiences with a pathological liar, you know, I, I do think there is the ability to get beyond that and to heal and grow from it because I've personally done it. So I know it can be done. Um, because what we're learning here today is that generally people are good and honest and, you know, the majority. And so it is, this unfortunate small percentage of people that damage others and then kind of, you know, they're, they're kind of the sour egg that ruin things for other people. Um, but I think this is comforting. You know, it is for me at least to know that this is a small percentage and we're probably not going to come across. If you have encountered somebody like this, you're probably not going to encounter that many in, you know, in your lifetime. So thank you for that. I, your work is fascinating. I love how you explain it. I feel like you, you know, have done this really complex work, but then you're explaining it in a way for me and, you know, everyday people to really understand and comprehend, you know, this extremely intense science that you're doing. And so I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Should we talk a bit about your book, Duped? I'd be happy to. All right. Tell us a little bit about it. Why Why should everybody read it? Duped is really for deception and social science nerds. If you uh, uh, read the reviews on Amazon.com, I think they're actually uh, quite accurate. Uh, all the professors and graduate students who read it I'll say it's wonderfully accessible and it's amazing how easy uh, it's made all the social science. Uh, a lot of the uh, non-social scientists who read it uh, get lost in the numbers in it. So I, I don't wanna tell your, uh, full disclosure, I don't wanna tell your listeners that uh, everybody should go out and read it. I, I tried to write it for uh, all audiences, uh, but there is, uh, some science, and there's uh, 55 experiments in there, and it's uh, uh, it can it, it can be easy to get lost uh, in the numbers. Although everything's explained, so uh, if you're willing to work at it a little bit, but it it it, it doesn't read like Malcolm Gladwell. The format of the book is uh, the first half is really about. Uh, deception research before truth default theory came along. And the real motivation for truth default theory was my, so I, I've done deception research for more than 30 years. And uh, the more research I did, the more questions I had. And the more findings I had, the more I became convinced that how other social scientists were understanding deception was just wrong. The, all, the thinking didn't, didn't match with the findings. And uh, researchers were always trying to make excuses for why they found what they did, uh, rather than really explaining why they found what they did. So truth to fault theory was an effort to uh, account uh, 
for, for findings that I didn't think uh, other perspectives and other theories uh, were able to uh, account for. So the book is set up by kind of uh, talking about, well, what was all the previous research, uh, then kind of critiquing previous ideas, then introducing kind of the basic ideas, and then getting into truth fault theory, and then covering the 55 studies uh, that I had done uh, at that point, uh, showing that uh, truth to fault theory uh, holds up pretty well. So this sounds to me like maybe some of our true crime junkies might get really into duped and like roll their sleeves up and kind of get into this because my, and you're nodding your head. Yes. Okay, good. So, because I know we've got like some true crime junkies that are listening and I think that's really great because you've done some of your work in collaboration or has been funded by, and you've worked with the FBI and other you know, organizations like that. I mean, that's like how in depth and like true crimey and digging into deception you've gotten, like you said, there's 55 journals and articles. Uh, 55 studies um, that, that are numbered in the book. Oh my gosh. Okay. So they, they follow the logic of the uh, experiment. Uh, I'm sorry. They, they follow the logic of the theory. So theories make predictions and then you know, you test the predictions and um, then you test them again to make sure they hold up. And so the, the experiments uh, follow uh, the logic of the theory. And whenever the theory says something that uh, I could test, I devise a way to figure out how to test it and um, do the study and see what happens. That's incredible. I mean, just incredible work. So we chatted a little bit about the name duped. And I was telling you how when I, you know, was coming across you and looking more deeply into your work, and I saw duped the book, I was like, Oh, man, that's a catchy name for a book, I've got to go pick up a copy. So how did you come about that? I think there's a little story behind the name if you would be interested in sharing it. Well, there is there's a story, but it's it's not how I came up with it. Uh, you know, I'm not sure how I exactly came up with it. Uh, so there was this ongoing conversation with my uh, editor and I um, about the title and also the cover art. And uh, if you haven't seen it, the cover has a Trojan horse uh, on it. And uh, and we both thought it was uh, perfect. I, I think we had a lot of debate on the, on the subtitle uh, where I wanted to be uh, nerdy and fully descriptive, and and he wanted something that would sell books. So I think the the compromise was duped, and then truth fault theory and the social science of lying and deception, uh, which which kind of captured both things. But right before the book came, there was already in press. Um, but right before it came out, uh, another author came out with a book uh, titled uh, "Duped." And this was a, uh, a reporter who had been uh, engaged uh, to somebody who was uh, an imposter and not who they uh, said they were. And of course, that was a perfect title for her too. Um, and, uh, and initially I was kind of upset that my wonderful title uh, wasn't so original after all. Mm. Uh, but then I thought, yeah, it's a good title. It's a great title. <laughs> no, I don't own it. <laughs> 
No, I love it. And it's interesting though, that two books very, you know, well can wear the same title or, you know, similar title, obviously yours has a subtitle and there is a lot in a name. I changed the name of my book very last minute. I mean, it was like a, I was questioning it because you're right. Like it's a very marketable name duped is. And I had gone with another title with like a funky spelling of one of the words. And while it was really fitting and kind of clever and cool, I found myself having to explain it every time. And now you're my favorite is the name of my book. And that's just easy. And like, and it makes sense when you read the book, there's a few different things in there. So that, you know, kind of pull to it. So I understand the importance of, you know, picking the title and the name. And in fact, I was reading that you originally named the truth default theory, or you were going to name it the truth bias theory. Yes. And can you explain why that name change? Sure, but there's a lot of backstory and I'm, I'm worried I'm talking too much. No, you are a wealth of information and I'm here for it. And I know so are the listeners. So truth bias gets into the story of how I became a deception researcher. And the story begins with my very good friend and colleague, uh, Steve McCornack, who now uh, works with me at UAB. Um, but uh, once upon a time, he was actually one of my professors. And even before then, uh, he got burned by a very deceptive girlfriend. Oh. Uh, and uh, she took off with his parents' credit cards, and it was it was it was a bad. Um, and apparently, uh, you know, just hugely deceptive, and uh, so he was just you know, as, as most of us can understand, uh, this is this is devastating when this happens to you. Mm -hmm. And he was deeply curious about how he could miss all the red flags and all the warning signs. <laughs> so he you can see me not. I'm nodding along my yes. head very aggressively. <laughs> uh, so his way of dealing with it was he did an experiment on it. So he did his undergraduate thesis at University of Washington, bringing dating couples into the lab and having one of them uh, lie and tell the truth about a bunch of personality things. And he would videotape them and then take the videotapes into the next room and show their boyfriend or girlfriend and see if they could figure out uh, which were which. And he found something that's now called the McCornack and Parks model of relational deception. And the finding is that the more you're in love with your partner, the closer you are, the deeper the relationship, the more you think you could tell if they were being dishonest to you. Mm -hmm. So closeness increases confidence. Okay. That you 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 become increasingly convinced you know this person. Yeah, that, I mean that makes sense to me. The more you become convinced that you know them, the more you tend to believe them, which he called truth bias, thus coining the term. Truth bias, then in his findings, made people miss the lies. Mm. 
So this might not be exactly in your wheelhouse, but you and I talked offline a little bit about narcissism and how I've been so deeply affected by it. And to me, where I kind of draw this connection is, this is probably where like love bombing comes into play, where a narcissist tries to pull you in so quickly, move the relationship along extremely fast. So you do have that close connection and then almost like a false sense of security. Uh, yes. And my my personal, you know, I'm not a psychologist, but my personal experience with narcissists, it takes a while to figure out that a narcissist is a narcissist. Mm-hmm. This is this isn't something that's apparent in the first week you know somebody, and sometimes not in the first year you know somebody. You only see the signs uh, over time, and it's it's really only when you threaten their fragile self. Uh, that their true colors start to uh, start to come out, or you no longer serve their ego needs uh, that they're using you for. Mm. Def- I definitely, yeah, I definitely relate to that. I can hear that. Okay, so I feel like I took us off track a little bit from the truth bias, but I, I just I felt like that was such a big moment because we do talk about that a lot here on Drinking with Jen, and so I just wanted to like have a quick little sidebar on that because that really seemed to you know be a strong connection. So going back to the truth bias, right? So so there's the finding. Okay. Um, and so uh, I went to grad school to study uh, persuasion. I was, uh, my, my father sold uh, residential real estate and I grew up uh, listening to sales talk and I put myself uh, through my undergrad um selling of all things timeshare condominiums um which i didn't last long in that and uh and hated it but i was i was uh really fascinated at the fact that that people could be sold on these things and uh and 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 other things so i i was interested in other things and then my university uh hired this um steve mccornack person and he had done uh, this, published a study as an undergraduate. And I thought anybody who could publish research that good as an undergraduate student must be like really smart and I could probably learn something from him. Mm. And my advisor was graduate director. Uh, so I got assigned uh, to his research team and I became his research assistant. And our first study up was to see if we could overcome truth bias by making people suspicious. So we uh, did a study just like his original study, although uh, some people, we didn't tell them it was a deception study at all. Some people, we put subtle little hints in there. Some people, we put big red flags in there. And uh, what we found is people are still truth biased. It's not like the red flags were irrelevant. But people went from believing their partners 80% of the time with no red flags to believing them two-thirds of the time with the big red flags. So they still believe them. Yeah. So this was was crazy. You know, we didn't want to break up anybody's relationships. And I did a, a lot of the debriefing. So I tell them, you know, they weren't really lying to you. It's just part of the experiment. I had boyfriends and girlfriends explain to me that, no, I didn't understand. They're 
their boyfriend, girlfriend wouldn't lie to them and that I was getting the experiment wrong. Oh. And so I thought, wow, this truth bias thing is super powerful. So then I, 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 I'm kind of tenacious. So I started pulling on strings and tugging. And, and what I found is it's not just couples. I, the closer you are, the more truth biased you are as a general rule. But everybody's truth bias is just gradations of truth bias. Everybody believes it's just gradation of belief. So every deception detection study I've ever done over these 30 years has found that people are truth biased. And one of the implications of truth bias is that the more you believe, the more you're right if you're dealing with an honest person, and the more you're wrong if you're dealing with somebody who's deceptive. And in the deception detection lab, it's always a flip of the coin if somebody's honest or not. But in everyday life, it's not a flip of a coin. It's hugely biased towards honesty. So then I began thinking, well, maybe it's not everyday people who are biased towards truth. Maybe it's researchers who are biased and put people into laboratory experiments where lying is way more prevalent than it is in everyday life. So I was talking this over with uh, an another professor named Torsten Reamer at Purdue. And he's like, well, yeah, you're, the way you're thinking about it, truth bias isn't a bias at all. Uh, so he suggested the name uh, Truthful. And I immediately thought, oh, that captures it. So hence the name Truthful Theory. Thank you, Torsten. Oh my gosh, what a story. And he, this is like such a Minnesota thing. I think we pronounce a lot of words wrong. So I know I called it the truth default theory, but I will now call it the truth default theory from now on. And I will say it correctly. Um, I'm not sure I heard the difference. Oh, default versus default. I don't know. Potato, potato, right? Yeah. I mean, we're, we're getting, we're getting, the, we'll get the spelling right. And we understand the theory so much better now. And what, what fascinating work and, you know, just the impact that that can have and give people a better understanding of kind of what that means in everyday life. So thank you for sharing that. I, I really like that story behind that. So the story behind the name duped, the story behind the truth default theory. I'll tell you a funny story. I know I said that I changed the book of my um, book at the last minute, but the first scene, the first chapter in my book actually takes place. It starts in Birmingham, Alabama. Oh. So kind of bringing that full circle. One of my, small yeah, small world. One of my um, good friends and former customers lives there. And I was meeting with her the day that my life imploded. So that's where my book starts, which is kind of interesting. I actually didn't think of it until uh, just a second ago. But um, so speaking of books, where can people get your book duped? Probably the easiest place is Amazon.com. Okay, perfect. But in any place that sells books uh, has it. it. The publisher is University of Alabama Press. Uh, so it's available on their website too. Oh, great. Okay. Well, I will link, I will link it directly in the show notes to Amazon. I will put your um, website so people can find you more about the fascinating work that you do. Anything else that you want to mention before we wrap up here on duped, the work that you do, the truth default theory? I think I just, I'd, I'd like to take the opportunity to uh, thank Malcolm Gladwell. Uh, he's, he, uh, he picked up on my work 
before Duke was ever published. And um, he's, he was actually the first person to ever read the book uh, when it was in draft form. And uh, he's, uh, you know, if you're uh, a professor and you do research, uh, it, most people will never pick up an academic uh, journal article. But the, the real reason those of us who do research uh, do research is to learn things and to uh, create knowledge. And I, I just, I, I really appreciate uh, you and Malcolm Gladwell and other people who uh, helped me uh, share the ideas of my work. Your idea is absolutely worth sharing. I mean, your work is incredible. Like I said, funny story, yesterday morning, I was flying home from Austin, Texas, and the guy in front of me as I was getting off the plane had talking to strangers in his hand. And I, he ended up kind of fumbling with his stuff and I had to get off the plane ahead of him. And I really wanted to stop and say something and be like, oh my gosh, Dr. Levine is going, we're recording tomorrow. He's going to be on my podcast. And the moment passed and I was kind of kicking myself afterwards. And I was like, you know what, Jenny, you should have just had that awkward moment and continued to spread, you know, the word on the good work that, that you're doing. So anyway, people are continuing to read it. I, like I said, I just saw it yesterday morning, you know, reading your work and we'll get the the word and the link out for duped so thank you so much for being here today i have thoroughly loved and enjoyed this entire conversation and you sharing your wisdom and your work with us so thank you so much you're very welcome happy to be here oh you gems thank you for listening and tuning in to drinking with gin i have enjoyed connecting with you and if you loved this episode, I need you to please go subscribe, rate, and leave a review for Drinking With Gin. And then to stay connected with me, head over to my Instagram. My handle is Ginny Preem. I can't wait to chat again with you gems next week.